Well, good morning, Mount Horeb. Everybody ready for Christmas? Good. My name is Trevor Miller, and I'm one of the pastors here at the church, and it's an honor this morning to be able to be uh, on the stage with you today, and whether you're watching online or you're here in person, to be able to open up God's Word together, to allow Him to teach us something new. It's an honor to be here with you this morning, to be able to do that together. I can't believe we are one week away from Christmas Eve. It seems like every year it happens faster and faster, um, and I look forward to the church looking like this. I was just walking around the room just, just marveling at like, the kind of transformation that takes place in this church just a week, a week time in preparation for Christmas. Uh, I love Christmas. Like really everything about it is my favorite. Everything about it I love. I love family. I love food. I love wrapping gifts. I love unwrapping gifts. I love lights. I love dessert. And so I'm looking forward to being able to celebrate uh, the birth of Jesus with all of you here on Christmas Eve and then be able to have a few days with my family to kind of relax and be able to uh, spend time with one another. Uh, there's this uh, one Christmas that happened within my life, and every single Christmas, I, I never go a minute without thinking about that particular one. I was a junior in high school, and I was living in Indiana at the time with my family, and my family had just built a brand new house on our kind of family farm where I grew up just outside of Lafayette, Indiana. And we had just finished this home, we were living in it, and it was a few weeks uh, before Christmas, but at that point in time, we had not put up our Christmas tree, and so one particular day, my sister and my mom were gone for the day, and so my dad and I were home alone, which is a dangerous thing. And so we decided, while they were gone, that it would be nice for us to take a bit of a burden away from my mother and having to pick out a Christmas tree, and so we decided while they were gone, we would go take care of that and get a tree of our own. But rather than being a normal father-son duo who goes to some big box store to find, you know, a Christmas tree of some kind and bring it home and do that, we decided we would go across the family farm to my grandparents' house because there was a grove of Christmas trees they planted years earlier. They had been left untended for a very long time. They were large and they were unruly and they were perfect. So my dad and I got in our truck and we drove over there to my grandparents' house and we were picking out which tree we wanted to bring to the house because our, our new house had a vaulted ceiling, a wide open space. We figured really any one of these trees that we picked, we could take home. It would fit right in there and my mom and my sister would be so excited. So we had our chainsaw with us and we picked out a tree and we cut it down. And the first indication that we had a problem was when we took that tree and tried to put it in the back of the truck, it wouldn't fit underneath the topper of my dad's truck. Uh, but we made it work, and we then drove it home. And our second indication that we had a problem is that we really couldn't fit it through the front door. But with a little Miller ingenuity and some pushing, we got it through the front door. And we got it into the living room. And once we got it there, we realized we had some other issues because we broke the stand, the normal stand we had for Christmas trees in trying to get this one up. So we said no problem. We built a two-by-four stand with wires to make sure that it stayed up straight. We broke a tile in the kitchen, getting it up as well. My dad had a wooden cross he had gotten from graduation from college that we knocked off the wall and broke that as well and bent the storm glass door a little bit on the way in. But it's no problem because when the tree was finally up in that space, it looked perfect. The problem was my mom and my sister came home. My mom didn't think it fit quite as well as we thought it fit. Um, we thought it was perfect and she thought it was a total misfit. You know, what I found kind of through the years, especially during Christmas time, is that misfit is a rather subjective term. You know, for this whole sermon series, misfits, this is a subjective term. It really depends on kind of who's looking at it and who's deciding. We've, we've learned this during Christmas each and every year. I've learned it that after Christmas, trying to put the clothes back on that I was wearing before Christmas, a bit of a misfit. Or when you have wrapping paper and you think you cut just the right size, and then you go to wrap the thing and you find out a misfit. 
all throughout the story that God is telling in the very beginning of these gospels about this birth of Jesus, there are different individuals and characters who show up that we've been looking at over the past few weeks. And from one perspective, from a worldly perspective, these individuals, these characters do not fit at all. You have a a young, unwed couple, this pregnant teenager, this fiancé Joseph, don't seem to fit in the story. You have a riffraff shepherds, this group who comes from the fields to come and find this Jesus. They don't seem to fit within the story from a worldly perspective. But from a heavenly perspective, it's a perfect fit. It's exactly what God wanted to do as he told about the birth of Jesus to the world. You see, what we see oftentimes as a misfit, God sees as a perfect fit. And so this morning, the the whole goal of this sermon series, if you feel like you are someone who does not fit into the story that God is telling within the world, for whatever reason, I have good news for you. If you're a misfit just like me, you have a place here in the manger. You have a place in the story God is telling. All that's required is that we would love Jesus with our whole hearts. You see, this morning we're going to take a look at these, this final character within the traditional Christmas story, and they actually show up after the birth of Jesus, and today we're going to look at these misfits that are known as the wise men, or they're known as the magi. So I want to read for you from Matthew chapter 2, verse 1 and 2. Here's what it says. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, where is the one who was born king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. So for just a moment, we're going to get a bit nerdy, okay? So I want you to kind of hang with me and go with me for just a second. The Bible says that these magi, these wise men come looking for this baby who was born. And the reason they come is because they have seen a star in the sky that for whatever reason, they see as being associated with this king of the Jews, this birth of this new king. Now in the Greek, this word magi is the word magos, and it literally means one of learned and priestly class. These individuals are much different than from the shepherds or this young couple that we find out at the very beginning. These individuals had some kind of prestige to them. And the east that's referred to in Matthew chapter 2 refers more than likely to a place uh, near Assyria, Babylon, Persia. It's, it's surrounding present-day Iran. This is where these individuals have come from. Now, the Persian word for the magi is actually translated as magician. So when you think magi, when you think wise men, in the ancient Near East, these magi were trusted officials. They were trusted advisors to kings. They they were learned men, and they were proficient in things like mathematical calculations and astrology and astronomy, medicine, alchemy, dream interpretation. This is who the magi were, these wise men. In fact, as far back as 604 BC, King Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon, if you remember, if you've read the scriptures in Daniel chapter 2, he had trouble translating a dream that he had had. And so the Bible says in Daniel 2.2 that he summons magicians, encanters, sorcerers, and astrologers to come tell him about his dream. But if you've read this story, these men are unable, these wise men, these magi are unable to interpret the dream. So he turns to a Jewish man named Daniel. And Daniel's able to do just that and becomes prime minister. So some scholars believe that during the time of exile in Babylon, as Jewish individuals were taken to that location, that more than likely 600 BCE, some of the writings of the prophets in the Old Testament were somehow gotten to the hands of magi. 
these wise men in Babylon. And so potentially, it's not too far-fetched to believe that for hundreds of years, not just the Jewish people were looking for this Messiah who was going to be born and come one day, but actually wise men in Babylon and Assyria and these locations also were looking for signs of the birth of this king. The Bible seems to indicate that one of the ways they did this is they looked at planets and stars and they looked to the sky for signs of this birth. And it's the reason that's given for why they've come this far. You know, in Lexington, every once in a while, we'll have a night that's dark enough that if you go outside and you look up into the sky, it's beautiful to see stars and moon. If you're near the lake when there's no trees in the way and you can see everything, it's, it's beautiful at times here in Lexington to see the sky. But I've never seen the sky like I have when I was out in Oregon when I was in college. Uh, in college, I was a youth ministry major and I was an outdoor leadership minor because that's super uh, easy to get a job with. So I was a youth ministry major, outdoor leadership minor, and my goal was to work in a camp at some point in time. So I ended up at Mount Horror, which is kind of like a camp. So, um, and for my internship, I had to do an outdoor internship somewhere uh, in, in, in the United States. So I did it in my home church in Indiana. But for part of that training was actually 15 days out west in Oregon with an organization called Outward Bound. And so for 15 days, I was in Oregon on the Deschutes River. And for 10 of those days, we, we paddled rafts. We learned to captain rafts up that river all the way uh, across Oregon. And so at night when we would go to bed, we were, we were literally sometimes hundreds of miles from any kind of city or any kind of town. There was no light pollution there. And when you would go to bed at night, we slept under tarps and you could look up into the sky. It literally looked like the stars were falling on top of you. And as far as you could see from the right to the left, top to bottom, there were stars everywhere. They were so bright and there were so many more than I've ever seen before. It literally felt like you could reach out and you could grab one and just pull it down. Maybe you've been to a place like this before where you've seen a night sky like this. Here in Lexington, there's so much light pollution. We often don't see the night sky and space the ways that we've seen it in other different places. It's beautiful. It's amazing, in fact. And so these magi who come to find Jesus, the Bible says they have been seeing a star that was an indication that this prophecy has finally come true. And their presence within the story, the presence in the, in the story that God is telling within the world, these magi, is simply because they have seen the star and they have come to find Jesus. What's most interesting about the story from the very beginning, you realize the first people who have come to worship Jesus are not Jewish, they're, they're Gentile. They're outside of the family of God at this point in time. And they're the first individuals to come and worship Jesus. And here's why. The author wants us to see something very, very important. The good news of Jesus is for everyone, everywhere. The good news of Jesus is for everyone, everywhere. This is a clear message from the writer in, in this book, Matthew. You have a pregnant teenage couple you have a bottom of the cultural totem pole, these riffraff shepherds who show up. And then you have these magi who are far removed from a Jewish culture. And these are the first three individuals to come and see Jesus. Here's what it means. There is no prerequisite for being a part of the story that God is telling within the world. None. All the cultural norms are shattered as these first three characters are a part of the story. Which means that we are all invited as well. Me. You, all of us, are invited to be a part of the story of God. Here's the only thing required, that you come and worship him as king, as authority within your life. And I would argue for these magi, the thing that gets them here is their amazement with creation. 
This astrology, this star, the sun, the moon, the magi focused in this kind of way, and it's what leads them as they find themselves in the story of God. The Jewish theologian and rabbi, Abraham Heschel, he said it this way, our goal should be to live life in radical amazement, to get up in the morning and look at the world in a way that takes nothing for granted. Everything is phenomenal. Everything is incredible. Never treat life casually. To be spiritual is to be what? Amazed. It's the amazement of the magi that bring them to where Jesus is. And I'm afraid that one of the things that keeps us from seeking Jesus during this season and worshiping him for who he truly is, is too many of us in the room this morning, we are simply bored with the story. We've heard it so many times. I'm afraid that many of us in the room, potentially, if you've been at this church for a very long, you may have heard this story 60 times. Every Christmas, it's the same story. Uh, Pastor Jeff has a, a famous quote, and he says this, you can't out-preach the event. And certainly at Christmas, that is true. But when we hear it so often, we might become numb to it. We might become bored with it. We might become bored with creation itself, bored with Jesus. And when that happens, we lose our amazement at what God is doing within this story. What God is doing right here within our midst. What would happen if we allowed every sunrise, every sunset to cause us to see as an invitation that Jesus gives to us to come and follow him? What would happen if we saw every birth of every child as an invitation to be in awe of creation? What would happen if hearing beautiful music like we did this morning, seeing beautiful art was an invitation to pursue Jesus? Because we look at the world and we'd be amazed by it. You see, our amazement is where the search begins. It's where it begins for the Magi. And I just wonder what would happen if we had that amazement brought back to our hearts this season. Would it cause us to pursue this Christ child once again? Christmas is a time for us to be amazed by the incarnation. The fact that God pulled on skin and walked among us. The Bible says that God so loved the world that he became human. And the essence of the spirit-filled life is amazement. You see, us old people, us old people, we have a tendency to lose this. The Bible has a reason for saying that we are meant to have Christ-like faith, childlike faith in following Jesus. If we're not careful, we become humbugs, scrooges at all that happens during this season. But if we can see this season through the eyes of a child, then we get a taste of what God desires for us. My youngest is two years old. Her name's Murray. And last Christmas, she enjoyed it. It was wonderful. But this year, something new has happened for her. And when we drive around town, whenever we see any lights, the same thing happens every single time. It doesn't matter how many are in the yard or anything like that, how bright they are, what colors, she does not care. The same reaction happens every single time. Wide-eyed, grin across her face, and she says, wow. To be exact, she says, wow, look at that no man. She's amazed by it every single time, every single time. And I can see through her eyes what it must look like for us to have the same kind of reaction to the story of Jesus. For us to look at Jesus and say, wow, wow, look what God has done. What the wise men say, wow, look at this star. And it leads them to where Jesus was born as they were waiting for what they believed would come true. 
May we never, ever lose our wow about what God is doing in and around us. And may it be the very thing that causes us to long to see Jesus as the Christ child, the true king. The Bible says that when they show up in Jerusalem, there's a man named Herod. He gets wind of these magi, these wise men who have come to town looking for a newborn king. And the Bible says that he is disturbed. Here's what it says in Matthew chapter 2, verse 3 through 8. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed, and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophets have written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people, Israel. Then... Herod called these magi, these wise men, secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report back to me that I also may go and worship him. Now, to really understand this portion of the story, this passage, you have to understand who Herod is and what Herod is like. Herod was a Roman citizen, though he was living in this region. He had been placed in charge of Judea, which encompassed Bethlehem, the place where Jesus would be born. And Herod was a tyrant. He ruled with an iron fist, and he would keep peace in the area at all costs. So Herod calls these wise men to him and says, listen, when you find this child, I would really like to go worship as well. So if you would, come back and tell me how I can find him too, so that I can go do the same thing that you are. But it is very clear from the story Herod has no interest in worshiping Jesus. He has no interest in worshiping this new Jewish king. His only interest in finding the location is because he wants to make sure that he can squash out this authority that's coming, this king that's coming, to make sure that he is not eliminated from the story. And he's nervous about it. And here's where his nerves come from. When a new king arrives, it means that an old king has to go. When there's a new king that arrives, it means an old king has to go. No wonder Herod's so disturbed. He's nervous because if people begin to believe that Jesus is the true king, the true king of the Jews, then potentially his authority would be over. His rule would be over. So he wants to find Jesus and make sure that he can squash that, get rid of that as quickly as possible. You see, at the heart of Christmas is the proclamation that the new king has certainly come to earth. And this king usurps every other kingdom, every other ruler, every other authority. Here's what it says in Isaiah, as the prophets wrote in the Old Testament. For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulders. He will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. This is who Jesus is. This is why he's come. You see, as clearly as I can say it this morning, I want to say this. Christmas is not about the stockings, the turkey, or the gifts. They're all good. But, but it's not what Christmas is really truly about. It's about the arrival of a true king. Jesus' presence in the world introduces a brand new authority that supersedes even our own authority. I've heard it said this way, that on the throne of our hearts, there, there's a place where someone can reside. And depending on who resides on that throne of our hearts, it decides the way that we live, the way we speak, the way we move and have our being. 
And for many of us, the one who sits on that throne of our hearts is actually ourselves. We believe that we are our own final authority. We get to choose how we live. We get to choose how we speak. We get to choose what we do or do not do. But at the heart of this Christmas story is that there's a new king who comes. And to be a true follower of Jesus, to be one who is no longer a misfit, but who fits into the story of God, it is one who says, I am willing to take this authority away and offer this authority now to Jesus as my true king, as the one who I really worship. And to be honest, I struggle with this. I struggle with this as a father, as a husband, as a friend, as a pastor, Because if Jesus truly is my king, if he really is my authority, then I have to parent with love and grace. I must serve my wife with a sacrificial attitude. I must befriend people with honesty and vulnerability. I must pastor with boldness and conviction. Because Jesus is my authority, not me. I'm afraid that some of us, we have the same reaction that Herod has. That if we really get right down to it, for Jesus to be king in our life, that disturbs us. That is far too much. We don't want to give that up. But that's what Jesus demands. You see, the arrival of the Magi declares that a new king has come and he is in charge now. Not Herod. Not our ego. Not our selfish desires. Jesus. He's in charge. So the Bible says that when they leave, they go and search for this child, the Magi. And in Matthew chapter 2, verse 9 through 12, it says this. After they, had heard, uh, after they had heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother, Mary. They bowed down and worshiped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. So the Magi come. And the Bible says they they find Jesus and maybe a location that's a little bit different from what we expect. I don't mean to blow anybody's paradigm this morning, but I do want to clarify a couple things. First and foremost... When they arrive, Jesus is no longer in the location where all the animals and the shepherds and the, and the manger was, like our nativity sets at home. I'm not saying do away with them. I'm just telling you the truth. More than likely, when the Magi get there, the Bible says they arrive at a house. They're no longer at this, this cave or this stable where Jesus was born, but they're now at a home. Some scholars believe that more than likely, this is one to two years after Jesus was born. Now, this could mean a couple things. It takes a long time to get from Babylon to Jerusalem and to find Jesus where he finally is in Bethlehem. And so in order for this to happen, maybe they traveled. Maybe the star showed up when Jesus was first born, but then took them time to finally find him and to search him out. They find Jesus, this baby with Mary, and they bow down and they worship him. And the Bible says they bring him gifts. It really is the first baby shower ever. The Magi weren't invited, but they show up anyway, and they bring these, these treasures, the Bible says, these gifts to this newborn baby Jesus. And I love a good baby shower. It's one of my favorite things to go. But what's always amazing to me is everybody always brings the same stuff. Right? It's like diapers and bibs and bottles, and there's lots of them. I'm not that guy. I'm like, I want to find the weirdest thing 
that I can find to bring each and every time. And so for me, it's like that one kind of like thing you plug in that has lights on the ceiling and it plays music and it's so cool. That's the kind of thing I want. But even if I show up with that and somebody else, like the three wise men bring gold and they put it on the table, I mean, what have I done really? So the first baby shower, Jesus is there. Mary is there. The three wise men show up and they bring these gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Now, we've grown accustomed to the story that there are three wise men who travel there. And again, just to be clear, the Bible actually doesn't tell us how many come, how many magi there were. In fact, in Jerusalem, there are over 85 different paintings and depictions of the magi that archaeologists have found. And it ranges anywhere from two magi in the picture to eight. But traditionally, we've thought there to be three because of the three gifts that are brought, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And these gifts, they're specific. These gifts have significance behind them. There's deep meaning for each and every one of them. They were the perfect gift to bring to Jesus. You see, the gold, it would always represent kingship. This precious metal was always associated with royalty, and so gold was brought to Jesus. The frankincense was a symbol of the priestly duties because frankincense was an aromatic fragrance that was used in worship oftentimes. And so frankincense is brought. And lastly, poignantly, myrrh is brought. And myrrh was a fragrant resin. And it was used most often in embalming and preparing bodies for burial. Not the thing that you would think you would bring to a baby shower. It's kind of a buzzkill. But the perfect gift shows the relationship between giver and receiver. The perfect gift shows the relationship between the giver and the receiver. And each and every Christmas, I'm like hardcore about making sure that whatever gifts I give, they mean something. I'm not the guy that's like, just, just get something. Like I want to find just the right thing. The gift that I give, I want it to be the thing that as I hand it over to them, this person says, oh, I get it based upon our relationship. I want the gift that I give to be the kind of thing that says, I know you and I love you. I truly know who you are and this is why this gift makes sense. And so for these magi, these three gifts are perfect. You see the first one, this gold, it, it symbolizes the kingship and it reveals that these magi believe that Jesus is the one true king over all. He rules Everything. He's above every king, above every authority, and everyone bows to him. And secondly, the frankincense, it reveals that they don't just believe him to be king, they believe him to be priest. He's the final go between, between a holy God and a broken creation. And Jesus didn't come to make sacrifices, Jesus came to be the final, one and only sacrifice that is needed to be a right relationship with God. So frankincense makes sense. Lastly, the myrrh. You see, the story of Christmas does not end in a manger. The story of Christmas actually ends on a cross. The very reason Jesus came was to live a life, to become a man and walk this earth, to serve many and to love many. And ultimately, Jesus came to give his life up on a cross. He dies a brutal death for you and for me. And so this myrrh, this resin that is given at this birth is a grim foreshadowing of Jesus' ultimate death and his burial. But it fits perfect. It reveals a relationship between giver and receiver. 
The Bible says the Magi then have a dream. After they visit Jesus, they bow down to worship him. They leave in a different route because they were warned not to go back to Herod. And so they don't. You see, Matthew's telling of the birth narrative of Jesus ends, I believe, in the most appropriate ways. It ends with these wise men who come and demonstrate what it truly looks like to be a follower of Jesus. And very simply, it looks like this. It's bowing down and it's offering what you have. It's bowing down and it's offering what you have. This is what the Magi do. This is what the wise men do. And for those of us this morning who still seek Jesus, this is what it looks like to follow him. Your authority is no longer has the last word and final say in your life. Jesus does. And whatever God has given to you, whatever he has blessed you with, you, you offer it to him with open hands, believing that he can take it and make a difference within the world. This is what the Magi demonstrate for us, and this is how we ought to live our lives. It's interesting that of all the people in Jerusalem as Jesus is born, the only three who seem to get it, the only ones who recognize that it's Jesus, are these three misfit characters. But they know that he's special. They know that there's something about him. I came across this great story this week, and it goes like this. One of my favorite Christmas stories is about an old shoe cobbler who dreamed one Christmas Eve that Jesus would come to visit him the next day. The dream was so real that he was convinced that it was true. So the next morning, he got up and went and cut greens and decorated the little cobbler shop and got all ready for Jesus to come to visit. And he was so sure that Jesus was going to come that he sat down and decided to wait for him. The hours passed, and Jesus did not come. But an old man came. He came inside for a moment to get warm from the bitter cold, and as the cobbler talked with him, he noticed the holes in the old man's shoes. So he reached up on the shelf and grabbed him a brand new pair. He made sure that they fit and his socks were dry and he sent him away. Still he waited, but Jesus did not come. But an old woman came and the woman who hadn't had a decent meal in two days, they sat and they visited for a while and then he prepared some food for her to eat. He gave her a nourishing meal and then he sent her away. He sat down and again waited for Jesus to arrive as he had been promised, but Jesus did not come. Then he heard a little boy crying out in front of the shop. He went out and talked with the boy and discovered the little boy had been separated from his parents and didn't know how to get home. So he put on his coat and he took the boy by the hand and he led him home. When he came back to his little shop, it was almost dark and the streets were emptied of people. And then in a moment of despair, he lifted his voice to heaven and said, Oh Lord Jesus, why didn't you come? And then in a moment of silence, he heard a voice as if saying, Oh, shoe cobbler, lift up your heart. I kept my word. Three times I knocked at your friendly door. Three times my shadow fell across your floor. I was the man with the bruised feet. I was the woman who you gave food to eat. I was the boy on the homeless street. Jesus had come, and the cobbler didn't realize it. A prayer for us this morning. During this season, this final week in preparation for Advent, the coming birth of Jesus Christ, is that every one of us, we would recognize Jesus for who he really is. We would not miss it every single subtle time that he shows up within our life. They would see the opportunity, the way we love our family, the way we love those around us. We would see Jesus in every single moment. 
we would recognize him, and that ultimately we would worship him on bended knee. We would offer to him whatever gifts he has given to us to show that we love him, that we adore him. So this morning, I want to pray for us this morning that we would love Jesus with all that we have, that we would seek him because we're amazed by him. Let's pray together. Jesus, we come before you this morning. Forgive us for the times, God, where we can get so wrapped up in this season with the lights, with the tinsel, with the wrapping, with the food, with the family. I pray, God, that you would help our eyes, our gaze to be on you. May we be amazed by the story that God is telling by pulling on skin and becoming one of us to ultimately give his life that we might be in right relationship with you, God. Forgive us, we pray, for the times that we miss you. And we ask, God, that you would make us keenly aware of your presence this week. We love you with our whole hearts. Help us to love you more. We are amazed by you. And this morning, God, we want to seek you. Would you meet us here, each and every one of us? And it's in your name that we pray. And everyone said, amen.